Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. This episode, however, is a bit different than past podcasts. Instead of interviewing an author about their book, this time I talked to Maria Yatskova about her documentary film, Miss Gulag, on the women's prison UF-919 in Novosibirsk. The film is now available on DVD. As of 2011, the Russian prison population numbered 819,200 people, of which 66,400 were women. Given that women make up only 8% of the Russian penal system, their stories inside and outside the justice system are rarely told. Thankfully, Ms. Gulov fills this gap by providing a rare glimpse into a women's prison by following Yulia, Tatiana, and Natasha through the prison of UF 919's annual Miss Spring Beauty Pageant. Began in 1991, the Miss Spring Beauty Pageant contributes to an inmate's rehabilitation by giving her a means to participate in the prison's social and cultural life. Also, given the importance of femininity in Russian culture, the pageant allows prisoners to express their womanhood in an institution that, as one warden says, is not a place for women. The stories of Yulia, Tatiana, and Natasha, however, are much more than about the pageant. They are emblematic of life in post-Soviet Russia and the difficulties the first generation of young women and their families have experienced in adjusting to its realities. Here is my interview with Maria. Hi, Maria. Hi, Sean. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me about Miss, uh, the film Miss Gulag. Uh, just to begin, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I came to the United States when I was a little girl. I was five years old when uh, I immigrated here with my family, my mother and my grandmother. And so basically, I, you know, I just grew up like a normal American in Queens. Um, but I always had strong ties to Russia emotionally. Um, we only spoke Russian at home. And um, I always wondered what it would be like to go back and what it would have been like had we not left. What kind of a person uh, would I have become? Mm-hmm. And how did you get drawn into making into filmmaking? Well, um, how did I get drawn into filmmaking? It was really this. It was one moment, basically, that I and I always talk about this one moment that I. Um, I really I didn't know what I what I wanted to do for for a long time, and um, I worked various jobs as a journalist, as a publicist, many things. And then one day I saw a film by a French filmmaker called uh, his name is Bruno Mansenjon, and he made a fantastic film called Richter: The Enigma about the Russian pianist Sviatoslav Richter. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that film, it just became crystal clear to me, and I said, I I want to do that. I don't know how or uh, when or anything, but that's what I want to do. And so, um, that, yeah, it was 
in a moment that I decided. Well, your will is actually impressive. Most people will have those moments and kind of move on. <laughs> um, well, well, this is, this is, Miss Gulag is a really interesting topic. I mean, because it deals with at least uh, as someone who studies Russia for a living, um, women's prisons is something we don't really pay much attention to. So how did you come to make this film about a women's prison and, and the Miss Spring beauty pageant in particular? Well, essentially, it began because um, I thought that the way to become a filmmaker, besides studying and going to school and watching films, was that I should probably apprentice or work at a film company or get to know a great director and be his assistant. And so for a long time, I looked for a job like that. And as anyone in filmmaking knows, those jobs are almost impossible to find. Right. And so, and to my great chagrin, I was not able to find such a job. And, and so I just thought to myself, well, you know, if I'm going to be a director, I should just go and direct uh, because it's not working out this, this other way, this safe way. Um, and I thought that I just need to, the way to do it uh, was that I need to find a story that I, I absolutely have to tell, that I can't, you know, that keeps me up at night, that... Um, uh, is something so important for me and that I feel so passionately about that I, I have to tell the story and that's going to be my first film and that was Miss Gulag. Mm -hmm. And how did you come across the topic itself? I mean, the, the, the fact that this Miss Spring pageant existed. I, I, I searched. I mean, I was really... Um, you know, I did it sort of the old-fashioned yet modern way. Um, I searched really uh, hard on the internet for a story that would move me to such an extent that I would, uh, you know, just do anything to, to, to tell it. And just completely by accident, I came upon this uh, story in a fashion magazine, of all things, <laughs> um, about this beauty pageant in a, in a prison in Novosibirsk. And uh, as soon as I saw it, I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even read the story uh, completely. I, as soon as I just saw what it was about, I knew that, that I had found my film. Mm -hmm. Was this in a Russian magazine or, or an English publication? Um, good question. You know, I think it was in a, in a Polish fashion. Oh, okay. <laughs> Even stranger. Well, we'll talk about the, the Miss Spring beauty pageant and, and what, what purpose does it serve in the prison? Like, why would they have such a thing? Well, they call it re-education. Uh, they, they think that it's sort of like a I guess like a form of therapy in a way and that because uh you know a, a prison is a priori not a place arguably not a place for anybody but definitely not a place for a woman um to be in and you kind of you lose all sense of yourself as as a female entity and so they do this for the women to kind of I mean, this is what they say, to reconnect with them, with themselves as, as females because, um, you know, every day they're wearing uh, those ugly uniforms. They're not allowed any kind of makeup or perfume or any of those things um, that are, you know, normal for, for women uh, in everyday life. Um, and so this, you know, this gives them a chance. And, oh, the other thing that they're doing is uh, as part of their 
kind of re-education, um, there are uh, sewing factories. So they are taught to sew. And what they sew are uh, uniforms for uh, male soldiers, essentially. So all day long, they're working with this gray, ugly fabric, making these ugly uniforms. Um, and for one time a year, they get to kind of unleash their creativity and their skills um, on this on this beauty pageant to make these these um, these very flamboyant outfits, uh, thematic outfits. Um, the other purpose that it serves is that when you uh, participate in camp activities, this looks good for your record. Mm-hmm. This was happens with Tatiana, who who is exactly. released when she goes before the board. They say, "Oh, she participated in camp activities." Exactly, exactly. So you know, there are not that many of these things. So to to participate, it's important to participate um, and to get chosen to participate because you know the it's twenty girls. I mean, there's five hundred girls in, in this place, maybe more. I don't remember now, but uh, you know, only really twenty get to participate and you know maybe um maybe a few more to kind of help out with the sewing and 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 stuff like that mm-hmm. but i think you know so that's their chance to participate in the camp activity yeah i, I want to let you elaborate a bit more about this femininity because to the line that was repeated one in the opening by an inmate and then again by one of the wardens was prison is no place for women and in your interactions with these these inmates, how did you get? What sense did you get of how prison life affected their sense of femininity, their sense of women, being a woman? Well, the thing is, is that I mean, you, you have to think about the fact that a lot of these sentences are really, really long. You know, seven years, ten years, and as women, you only have as a woman, you only have a very limited uh, kind of amount of time that you can get married and start a family. And this is especially true in Russia. I mean, right. yes, people in the United States get married when they're 50 and 60. And, but that, I mean, that's not really, in, in, in Russia, that's not common. And it's not, um, you know, the, that's, not every, that's not what everybody dreams of. Everybody dreams to get married at 25 and at, at the latest mm-hmm. and have a baby and have a family and, you know, have a quote-unquote normal life. So obviously, if in the kind of flowering of your youth, you're in this place, you what's going to happen to you when you come out? Who's going to marry you? Who? How are you? Do you, do you understand? Mm-hmm. That was, that was really foremost on their on their minds, and I could totally I could totally understand that. Right, I would imagine too that you know because issues of femininity. I mean, there's kind of a the way I see the kind of hyper femininity in Russian culture. Um, that that you know these women being in prison in their mid to early to mid twenties that when they get out I mean a lot of their prospects to get married and to have children have have closed. Um, Not to mention job prospects, exactly. education prospects, all of those things become um, almost unattainable. Right, right, and I want to. I have a, a question later on uh, specifically about that. But uh, what, the first question I want to ask is. How did you get access to this prison? I think we wrote a letter. I don't even. I don't even really remember. This is more a question for Irina Vadar, who's who's the producer. She, um, you know, it was it was quite amazing. I, I have to say, somewhere we didn't even really believe that they would let us. We just kind of did it in Russian. You say no ura, you know, just 
let's see if we can get permission. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, Irina worked really hard doing all of the administrative parts of it to, to you know, she found out who to write to, what to write. Um, it, it, it was just a very administrative, long kind of bureaucratic process. Oh, I, I can imagine. Do you think that the prison maybe saw this as an opportunity advantageous for them? Oh, sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this prison... Uh, from what I understand, they're, they're sort of pioneers in, in lots of ways. And, um, you know, they started, from what I understand, they were the first to, to start doing this. Then afterwards, lots of uh, the camp started, oh. started doing this. And, um, and so they already several years in the row, the local media would come and, uh, and cover, cover them. So... Yeah, of course, you know, Russian prisons get a bad rap. Certainly. (laughs) You know, so of course they wanted to, um, you know, with the expectation that they could control us. Now, the film revolves around three women, Yulia, Tatiana, and Natasha. How did you uh, get them to agree to be subjects? Well, the thing is, is that, you know, they are uh, prisoners, so as far as the administration is concerned, they are non-entities and they don't have any rights. And if the administration says to them, you're going to be a part of this movie, they don't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, which, when I figured this out, made me really uh, very uncomfortable. And so um, I said to myself that this is, I was not going to treat them like this, mm-hmm. that, that I was not going to treat them like prisoners, that I was going to treat them like human beings, like maybe, you know, friends that I have just met and that nobody, and, you know, I talked to the cameraman about this, you know what, don't, if you see somebody giving you a look or turning away or whatever, don't shoot them. Mm-hmm. You know, let's respect as, as much as we can, let's respect their human rights. If they don't want to be on camera, they don't want to talk to us, we're, we're not going to, you know, force that. Um, how did you get the Yulia, Tatiana, and Natasha? I mean, how did you get them to participate, and how did you get access to their families? Um, well, basically, what, what started happening was that the first couple of days, I was interviewing everybody, and I was weeding out the people who didn't really want to participate, even though they couldn't say. But you can, but you can tell. I mean, you can always tell if somebody really doesn't want to, and people who are, were more interested and kind of open to talking to me it was it was it was just a vibe I would get a vibe about it and um uh and I would just just speak to them it was just based on on human contact and it wasn't like at any moment that I said so do you want to be the main character of my film (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't like that at all because at that point I didn't even really know who the main characters were going to be you know, I found that out as I was making it. Hmm. So it just kind of happenstance and then developed kind of organically, it sounds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely organically. And so, for example, when I would have an interview with Yulia and she, you know, inevitably she would talk about her mother or that her mother was going to come to visit. And so I was like, oh, my God, guys, we have to shoot this this visit with Yulia's, with Yulia's mom. And so we would shoot that. And then we we're like well, guys, you know, we, we have to go and, and, you know, see where Yulia's mom lives and just talk to Yulia's mom alone. So it just was completely organic. 
Now they're in they're in prison for um, I mean Yulia is in prison for drugs, Tatiana for armed robbery, and Natasha was in prison for armed assault. Um, and one of the statistics that you give is that seventy uh, percent of unemployed of the unemployed in Russia are women. Um, talk a little bit about women in crime in post-Soviet Russia. The thing is, is that women always in Russia have had, in my opinion, um, the larger burden of responsibility for everything. I mean, I look back to my mother and even more so my grandmother, um, and I just, it boggles the mind how they did everything that they did. You know, they would get up at five in the morning to, you know, clean the house and make borscht and take us to school and um, just everything. And, And she was a pediatrician, you know, so she had you know, a line down the block of, of patients. And she would, you know, also um, go, she made house calls, you know, in negative 30, 40 degree snow. So it just boggles the mind. And lot, and this was normal. And the man didn't really, you know, didn't really do much. And so suddenly they're faced with the situation where um, they're not as needed anymore. I think, where there's just like this complete chaos where the, you know, employment is, is crumbling. You know, it was like in the Soviet Union, for better, for worse, everybody had a job. Nobody was homeless. And you, you know, yes, you could barely make ends meet and you couldn't travel, you know, internationally and you didn't have some of like the luxuries and you had to wait online for five hours for a bag of potatoes. But, you know, you weren't on the street and you had a job and you had an education and then suddenly all of that falls apart. And um, I I think it was very hard for the older generation uh, because they're used to something completely different and also incredibly difficult for the younger generation because they don't know what to make of it. Especially so, those in the provinces. Especially those in the provinces. And so, and there was, there were no drugs. There was n- no guns. I mean, it, or like only to like a very select few were, you know, drugs available. I mean, this is something that wasn't even heard of um really uh, and and suddenly it's like this influx of everything evil in the world basically yeah i found that the story of uh, natasha's family um she describes her childhood as being um having no clouds um in Kaz- growing up in kazakhstan and then once the soviet union collapsed really their life just unravels her father seems to have a career as a musician her her mother is a principal of a school and then they have to they have to move to this, you know, the sticks in, in, in remote Russia and in this village that looks like, really like the 19th century. Um. Uh, yes, yes, maybe even 18th or 17th. I mean, it was, it was very funny when, when we got there because I had always had a certain sort of romanticized view of the Russian Diryevna and, you know, what is it like to be in a Diryevna? And, and then I, I saw firsthand what it's like to be in a Russian village. And there was, there was a part of me that, um, that felt very comfortable and happy there. Like I kind of, I almost felt like it was a homecoming in many, in, in certain ways. But then you, you know, when you take your sort of pink lenses off, you see what it's really like. 
and uh, how incredibly difficult it is. And for, for those people like who are, you know, so educated and so, um, you know, just creative. And, and I mean, it's an amazing, they're an amazing family. Yeah, I got the impression they are too. I mean, they're, they seem very tight knit. Um, mm-hmm. And and here they're in this situation. I think at one point her mother, Natasha's mother says the village is dying. And, and as a teacher, she doesn't know how much longer she's going to have students. Um, yeah. So the situation, yeah. it's, it's, I always like any effort to show the provinces of Russia because we tend to only see Moscow and then to some extent St. Petersburg, where yes. the reality, even 100 miles outside of Moscow, is completely different. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and that was also a big thing for me because you constantly are bombarded with images of Russia and to some extent St. Petersburg. And you know what? Even Russians say this now. Moscow is not Russia. Right. Right. Um, talk a little bit about the living conditions in the prison. You know, this is this is a very sort of painful thing for me to talk about because I don't I don't truly believe that we were allowed to see the real living conditions. I was going to ask about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were we were very limited and very controlled um, every step of the way, and so whatever you see. I mean, it's still pretty, like, it's horrible, but uh, it's almost really a metaphor for what's really going on. And you don't, no one is really allowed to see what's going on. You can just, you can just imagine. Um, So I don't know. I don't know. All I can, all I know is when I speak to, to these women, when I look at them, you're, you know, and when, and just being there, just breathing that same air, uh, you know, physically, it's not good. It's not good physically. But I think m- more than that, they, they suffer emotionally more than physically. In, in what sense emotionally? Um, well, because you're completely cut off from the world. Mm-hmm. You're really paying a very high price for what are arguably, I guess here they would be misdemeanors or even you know, uh, not very serious crimes. Um, and what really bothered me is that I, I knew, I knew that girls, young women and men from Moscow with the right connections would not even see the inside of a, of a cell, much less get these sentences. Mm -hmm. And that, that just, that infuriated me. Right, right. Yeah, you do see, uh, a, you know, the, the the disparity in which who serves. I mean, you can see this with the military, too. Who serves and who doesn't is, is quite dependent upon your position in society. Yeah. Um, and what were the relations between between the inmates? The, the relation between inmates and then the, their relations with the prison officials from what you could gather from your interactions? Well, I think that the the women, I mean, it's like a microcosmos of society. So you make friends, you make enemies, but you have no escape. So, um, you know, it's very hard to, to, to function in a, in a microcosm of society from which there is no escape. You can't just, you know, hang up the phone and not see that person for lunch next week. You're all, you know, you will see them all the time, constantly. And so there, there are instances where they really kind of, 
they just make each other's lives miserable on many levels. Um, but there, but there's the the antithesis of that, where the the friendships are very very strong and intense, um, and outlast that experience um, in many in many cases. The officials, I mean, they're scared to death of them. I was scared to death of them. Right. I was scared for different reasons. Uh, I, I was uh, nervous because. Uh, well, first of all, just to be in that environment was was heart wrenching. I mean, the first time I saw that morning roll, I felt like I was in a concentration camp. Um, kind of every documentary, every movie I've ever seen about concentration camps like flooded back to me, and um, I really had to kind of get it together to not burst into tears. Basically, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, and for 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 them, so you know, they they wield the power essentially. So the women are incredibly careful, very respectful. Uh, never argue. Never look at. Never look them in the eye. They're always looking down. Um, it's total submission, complete submission. So. For me, I, I wasn't like that. I mean, I, was, I wasn't a prisoner and I'm not used to being submissive. And so, I, I mean, I knew that I couldn't argue or complain about anything, but I would make requests. I would say, you know, I, I would like to do this and I would like to do that. And they would try to, within reason, um, to honor my requests. But be, in the very beginning, before we ever got, uh, you know, got into our first shooting session, I had to, on camera, sign a piece of paper, a protocol, a contract that, you know, I can shoot this and I can't shoot that and this is allowed and this is not allowed. And, you know, if you shoot what's not allowed, you know, it's, uh, I don't know how to translate it in, into, into English, mm-hmm. whatever. Right, right. <laughs> the, the, the criminal code. <laughs> criminal code. That, and, you know, the implication was you won't leave. <laughs> right, right. Did they have to vet some from some of the film shot? You know, no, they didn't. They never asked us uh, to view the material, uh, but we were living under constant stress that they would. Yeah, I always have working in archives. I always have this kind of constant stress too. In some some cases, not all, of course. Um, yeah. One of the more uh, disturbing things uh, among many disturbing things in this in this film is that Natasha talks about that once she's released from prison she doesn't have documents and and to some yes. extent even says suggests that she's lost her citizenship rights can, yes. can you elaborate on w- what that is because I, d- I don't know anything about this basically what happened was is that they were living in Kazakhstan and so so they were citizens of Kazakh. They were, I mean, they were. We were all citizens of the Soviet Union, and for, first and foremost, and then we were the citizens of the republic in which we lived. So, be that Russia or Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan or any of the um, twelve or fourteen republics. I don't remember how many there were. And so, what happened was is that they were forced out as refugees into Russia. And they were at a certain point, because there were many people like that, they were on hold to get their Russian, new Russian citizenship. They were refugees into Russia without papers. All they had were their Soviet papers. The Russian law said that, you know, yes, that they are eligible for citizenship. But Natasha committed her crime before 
she got Russian citizenship officially. And so, so she, when she came out, everything had changed. It was a complete kind of new everything. The law was different. The country was different. Um, and she still hadn't papers. Her only document to verify who she was was her release certificate from prison. And which, of course, if you take that and go to any kind of employment, you're going to... Well, of course. I mean, it's it's a nightmare. It's one nightmare after the next. Um, and so getting, even getting citizenship with just a paper like that, I mean, they just made it very, very hard for her because either there aren't laws established yet or they're not... I mean, you can imagine that they're not really... I mean, how many people could have that happen? that could have happened to, you know, it's a very kind of, it's a, it's a difficult case for them to deal with bureaucratically. So the way they deal with it is by not dealing with it, with it. And they just put her off and put her off and put her off. Yeah. I guess that that's actually a really fascinating story. I mean, given her family as living as Russians in diaspora, I mean, not during the Soviet Union, but after the Soviet Union collapses, now they're suddenly diaspora. And then they return to Russia, and they don't automatically have Russian citizenship. I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a, a I would imagine, a big issue in the 1990s when a lot of Russians yes. returned back. I, I hadn't even considered. Yes. yes, yes, it was a huge issue. But I mean, people got their citizenship eventually, and Russia made the appropriate laws to to deal with this. But I mean, imagine what it was like in 1992. What laws? What? you know, what citizenship, you know, people were, you know, running for their lives. Yeah, and then once you uh, once you commit a crime, then you're thrown in a whole different category uh, legally. In a, you're in the system. You're in another system, and, uh, you know, you're lost in the system for a long time. And when you come out, you that, you know, that follows you wherever you go for a really long time. Now, since since finishing the film, and you finished the film in what year? Well, the world premiere was in 2007, February 2007 at the Berlin Film Festival. Have you had any contact with the three three women you uh, you featured since the finish of the film? Yes, yes, I I have. I I spoken several times uh, to Natasha, and I was trying to help her with her documents because somebody had seen the film and recommended a particular office, a particular person even, that she should get in touch with. And uh, her sister uh, had moved to Moscow and this office was in Moscow. So I was in touch with the sister trying to kind of encourage her to start doing this for Natasha. Um, I don't, at a certain point, I, I don't know what happened in the end. If I, I do know that the whole family was able to move to Moscow but Natasha was not. She was still in this kind of bureaucratic limbo. And, um, you know, as I'm doing more of these talks and remembering the film and remembering the women, I, I really kind of, I want to get in touch again. So I do, I want to make some time and, and try and find out what, you know, what's happened to her since the last time I spoke to mm -hmm. her. And Yulia and Natasha, Yulia, Yulia and Tatiana. Uh, well, Yulia, this is very sad. I have not been able to to find Yulia. Um, and we actually sent our line producer with the film to try and show it to the girls who were still in there. I don't remember if, and we didn't know if at that point Yulia was still in there or not. And he found out, I mean, they first of all, they said, 
no way that they were going to show this movie. Oh, really? <laughs> that was. Yes, that was the first thing. And but he did find out that Yulia had been released and that she's with her mother, they're safe, but nobody knows where where they are. They're apparently they're they're they were in hiding from this, you know, from this drug oh, right. dealer boyfriend. Um so I, I, I lost her. I wasn't able to to locate her. But I can I can try I can certainly try again. And Tatiana I called her a couple of times for her birthday, um, and also later when the line producer went, uh, he found out that either either she got married and had a baby, or she was um, engaged and was pregnant. It wasn't totally clear. Okay. okay. <laughs> it wasn't totally clear, but she was out and seemed to be the the. The line producer said, you know, she seems to be doing okay, but it's going to be difficult with her to, you know, with the baby and everything. Because the the boyfriend, fiancé or whoever was a, uh, apparently a long distance truck driver. So that's very, that's very hard, obviously, for, on a, on a family. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. So that's kind of the latest of, of what I know. Oh, and one of the women who she... I was going to she was kind of an an added character that I that I wound up having to cut unfortunately and uh and I really wanted to to put her in as a as a DVD extra but we just didn't have the um enough financing to do the kind of DVD that I that I really wanted to do with with extras and commentary and things like that but yeah she she wrote me an email actually um she's the one if you remember like this with this very curly long hair that they're like blow dry there's like the scene where they're putting makeup on in her the beginning and, um she's wearing a uh, white no. a white pink a big white dress with pink no. oh, okay no, 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 not her. That's that's Natalia. There was another one, Tatiana, and she had a very interesting story. She had twins, uh, twin little twin little girls. One of whom was um, had some sort of a deformation on her hand, like there was something wrong with the hand. And I, my suspicion at that time was that she was using drugs, and that's why the child was deformed but I could never I could never really get to the heart of that story and I didn't it just didn't fit at a certain point but she was she was a like a a really wonderful wonderful girl and so she wrote to me and I had kind of like a little back and forth with her and uh, she was supposed to send me an address for the DVD that I could send her the DVD um and uh and then she kind of fell off the grid so yeah. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful documentary. I really, really enjoyed it as much as one can enjoy these types of things. Um, but it's oh, thank it's you. a great, it's a wonderful story, and it, and it's a story that's not, as I said, not usually told. So I'm glad that you brought it to light and to do it through the prism of this this beauty pageant. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, so, and and to kind of close up the interview. So, what what's next for you? What do you what other films have you done, and and what's in store for the future? Well. Um, when I finished Miss Gulag, uh, after this kind of um, very claustrophobic and scary environment, I I thought to myself, I really, for the next film, I really want to be out in nature somewhere where there is a palpable sense of freedom and 
that you can smell the air and it's fresh and I don't want to do National Geographic, but, you know, something where I can just be out, um, out in nature. And I was in Azerbaijan at the time and I stumbled upon this story about, uh, they call them the long lifers. And it's this community of elders in the mountains of Azerbaijan who are renowned for their longevity. And uh, so the story started out, the film started out as being an exploration of uh, the secret to their longevity. But then as I got more and more into it, I realized that, well, you know, they're not actually living as long as they used to. And there's not that many of them and they're kind of dying out. And and why is that? And so I, I focus on three families and there's a lot of intergenerational um uh, storylines there also because in Azerbaijan, I mean, the families are very tight knit, very big, tight knit families. Um, and, uh, you know, it takes place over the course of, of one year. So you see the seasons changing in this incredible, this incredibly, uh, fantastic, beautiful landscape. And, uh, there's a birth, there's a death, there's a wedding. Um, it's, it's going to be a beautiful film. It's, it's in, uh, I'm in, I'm in the editing of it, of it now. And um, then at the same time as I was working on this film, this film started having some production problems. And um, to sort of not go crazy, I said, I, I said, okay, I need to just take my mind off it and I need to start developing something else. And um, I always knew that I wanted, being, being in Azerbaijan, I always knew that I wanted to somehow... Um, tell the world about the Nagorno-Karabakh oh, conflict. Okay. Um, I don't know, you know what you know about that, but um, it, it just, uh, it really pounded on me, this thing. And I mean, when I first got there, I saw this, you know, I, I was given this big uh, guide to look at and I wanted to go everywhere and see all of the regions. And then there was like this giant X in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, can't, you can't go here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what, what do you mean? You know, just, just tell a documentary filmmaker you can't go here, you know? <laughs> so, of course, that was like the one place that I wanted to go immediately. And, um, and so I was able to uh, secure access through ANAMA, the Azerbaijan National Agency for Mine Action. And I started doing, of course, I wasn't able to go right into Nagorno-Karabakh, but I'm in the kind of, in the, in the zone that is still Azeri, in the free, the free zone. Um, and I was able to work with uh, the Mine Action Agency to, I did some work for them. And at the same time, I wanted to, develop a film so I was making just these you know little NGO clips for them um, and and at the same time trying to develop a film and I actually I have some some news last week I found out that I have been uh, awarded the Fulbright to pursue this oh to congratulations pursue this thank you congratulations it's wonderful <laughs> you you heard it first. Yes. <laughs> well, as a as a as a alumni of Fulbright, um, welcome to the club. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, that's amazing. So, well, I really I look forward to both of those films. It sounds. I mean, again, you're keeping with the theme of doing the periphery of uh, post Soviet space, and and I, I look forward to seeing yes. both of these. Hopefully, we can uh, we can talk again once those come out. Oh, I would love to. I would love to. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you so much. I've been speaking with Maria Yatskova about her film, Miss Gulag. I hope you enjoyed the interview. 
Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when I talk to Daniel Treitzman about his book, The Return, Russia's Journey from Gorbachev to Medvedev. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> Денег все не соберем.